Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. So in today's episode, we'll be returning to Brexit and looking specifically at the role of ideology, political beliefs and emotion in what happened and what's going to happen there. My guest today is Professor Helen Thompson. Helen is Professor of Political Economy at Cambridge University. She's been there since 1994 and is at present Deputy Head of the School of Humanities and Social Sciences. Her work is focused on the historical origins of the post-2008 economic and political world and the crises that it's generating for Western countries. More particularly, her recent work covers the political economy of oil, Brexit, and the Eurozone crisis. Helen is also a regular panelist panelist on Talking Politics, which I absolutely recommend as one of my favourite podcasts. It's more geared towards practical politics, what I called in this interview comparative government, and it's absolutely exceptional. Um, It's absolutely one of my favourite shows, so I really recommend that. I've been listening to it for a while, I invited Helen on and was really happy that she agreed to do so. One quick note is this episode is a little bit longer than our standard episodes. What I usually do when I have a longer interview is I just split it into two episodes, and I decided not to do it here just because the rate of news has been so fast with Brexit that I worried if I strung it out over several weeks, the final part would already be out of date. I mean, maybe not. We end with what we think is going to happen, and that hasn't proved to be ridiculously dated yet, but you never know. So it's a slightly extended interview, but honestly, Helen is so fascinating that I think you can maintain your interest for the entire hour and a bit that we chatted for. I'll also be clear about where my own knowledge and lack thereof lies. As I said in this interview, I am not an expert. I'm as far from an expert as you're going to get on the procedural and structural side of some of these questions, and I'm happy to be corrected if I'm getting it wrong. My questions in this interview were much more geared towards what are the role of political beliefs, and how far has this process been driven by people's commitment to ideals. So, with that as preamble, let's get right to it. If you stay tuned after the episode, I'll do a few updates on what's coming up next in the podcast. I've got another big project that I'm going to be excited to share with you all. And as always, a reminder that these episodes go out for free and advertisement free to thousands of people. If you'd like to support me in doing that, we have a Patreon page where you can donate any amount. I've been suggesting a couple of dollars an episode. And to do that, just go to patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast. Or you can check out our website with links to iTunes, Twitter, all the ways to follow. And that's just politicalphilosophypodcast.com, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. So please do check those out. Apart from that, let's get straight to it. It is my absolute pleasure to present Professor Helen Thompson.
Okay, I am joined today by Helen Thompson. Professor, welcome to the podcast. Good to meet you, Toby. <laughs> or good to talk to you anyway. Yeah, or if this counts as meeting in a digital way. Yeah. <laughs> I think it does. Um, so, Al have already introduced you at this point, but do you want to just briefly say what sorts of issues you think and teach and write about? Yeah, so um, I'm Helen Thompson. I'm a professor of uh, a professor of political economy in uh, Cambridge University in the Department of Politics and International um, Studies. Um, I spent most of the last sort of ten years or so, in one way or another, um, working on what happened in 2008 and its economic and political um, fallout. And I'm a regular panelist on the podcast Talking Politics, which. I've actually recommended on this show before, but if anyone has not checked out Talking Politics, they absolutely should. That's one of my regular podcasts, and I found it. I remember thinking I need a show like this before I even saw it, and I was thinking, I listen to a bunch of philosophy podcasts. I need, like, a good comparative government podcast. That's what we used to call it when I did the core modules at university. It was political theory, comparative government, IR, and sociology, right? And I was thinking, I haven't done any good comp gov in so long, and I need something that goes beyond journalism, but not so far it's going to lose me. Um, and that was abs- And I just found it randomly, and that was absolutely what I got. So terrific work on that. I really you, enjoy it. <laughs> I'm sure David will be glad to hear that. Yeah. Um, but... Yeah, and you've been doing that for a little while now, haven't you? Yeah, we started actually when it was called Election in 2015. We just did then a season, as we called it, mm-hmm. in the run-up to the 2015 general election. And then we started again with another season that ran th- um, through the beginning of the US primaries in 2016. And then it feels like, I'm not sure whether this is entirely accurate, but at some point after the referendum in Britain, we went to being having a episode most weeks in fact pretty much every week yeah how are you doing with the brexit thing because i've covered it all of once on the podcast but you've covered it two dozen times at this point yeah probably at least that uh it's definitely gets to the point where um well there's two things that happen first of all it's mentally quite exhausting simply Mm. trying to keep up with what is happening on a day-by-day basis, or at least it was in the in the few weeks um, leading up around the second and the third votes on the meaningful votes on the withdrawal agreement. Uh, and then there's the question of once you've said things about it often enough and been wrong often enough about making predictions, which I'm never very keen on in the first place, then that adds, adds a whole other um, level of complication to it because then people can just kind of turn around and say, well, just keep getting it wrong. <laughs> To be fair, I mean, you'd be hard-pressed to point to any single person who's made a lot of predictions and, <laughs> yeah. and got them all right. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, I'm not in the business of doing that. Um, I predicted last time I did it, I thought we'd get a long delay and we'd get a long delay, but that's probably the only thing I've gotten right about it. I mean, it's, it's hard because it's like just... It feels like so much of it is just up to chance and happenstance, it and is. a few I mean, votes go that, the other way, you know? I, I, I do think it, it, it's, it's underestimated the contingencies, and it's certainly true that there's lots of things or a number of things that are structurally true, 
that explain why we have got to the position where we are, I think. And one of them is the fact that in Britain we have a minority government. Right. You know, so a government that doesn't have a majority and it's major- and it's a de facto then majority in the House of Commons is dependent on a party that's at the centre of the conflict in terms of getting the withdrawal treaty through the House of Commons, which is the Northern Irish question, so the Democratic um, Unionist Party. And then there's the structural reality that the treaties that the EU is negotiated in this kind of um, context, whether it be its own internal um, treaties or the association membership, associate membership it was effectively negotiating with Ukraine, have tended to run into significant, severe from significant to severe problems when it comes to domestic ratification. Having said that, there are clearly some contingencies at work. I mean, I think a good example was on the um, the third meaningful um, vote, there was an amendment put by two Labour MPs, which basically said that the withdrawal agreement should be supported under condition that Parliament would have a more significant role going forward in the future trade negotiations. And then the Speaker ruled that the amendment couldn't be considered. The government then said that it would accept the substance of the amendment anyway, even though it couldn't be considered. And the two Labour MPs who had sponsored it, the amendment, pushed put the amendment forward, still voted against the withdrawal agreement. So I think there's an interesting counterfactual there. It's like, well, what would have happened if actually the Speaker had accepted the um, amendment and actually it not being accepted made it more difficult even when they were granted the substance of what they wanted for those Labour MPs to have any ownership of what was then happening. So I don't think it's all determined by these structural forces, but there's no doubt that um, there's no doubt that some of it is. And well, I mean, I'm not an as far I'm not I was gonna say I'm not an expert on the structural forces. I am as far as you are likely to get from an expert on the structural forces. I have though had this weird feeling of like at least for the past month or so, just looking at the composition of the parliament, counting the votes whenever they do votes. And I'm just looking at it and going, right or wrong, whatever you want to see happen, whatever you ought to see happen, there are just not the votes in this parliament to pass this thing. And I've you know, I've been feeling that as you keep doing the meaningful votes, it'll go up. But every time they're going to, is it going to pass this time? Is it going to pass time? In the back of my head, I'm like, am I missing something? You just, this is just not the parliament to pass this thing. Like, whether you think they should or not, there's just not the votes in this parliament to pass this thing. Which is why I said I thought we were going to get a long extension, because if it's just not going to pass no matter what, it's either that or you fall out completely, and which is more likely. That that was that's where my analysis I mean, there's, there's no doubt that um, right from the start, in the sense of once the withdrawal agreement had been negotiated, the only realistic path to the treaty being passed through the House of Commons involved Labour votes, or at least the very least significant numbers of Labour abstentions, because even if you kept the the DUP on side. Um, and you've got almost all the ERG, so the the, the, the Tory um, backbenchers who've been opposed to the withdrawal agreement, of whom some have been peeled off since the first meaningful vote, and but I think about 30-something are st- still voted against on the um, third. Given that you have, I think it's eight um, Conservative remainers who don't want to vote for the withdrawal agreement either, then it's simply, as, as you say, a matter of arithmetic that... 
all the ERG plus the DUP does not get you to a majority in the in the House of Commons once you have Tory remainers. Now, clearly, there have been a few Labour MPs who've been willing to vote for the withdrawal agreement, um, but you know that, that that's a very small. Um, it's in the like number. single digits. Yeah, right. single digits. So, the path to passing it has always gone through the Labour supporters being more at least around the fifteen, perhaps more like the twenty um, level, and. It, and, and it hasn't got there. And that's why I do think that what happened in terms of that amendment um, that was pushed by Lisa Nandy and Gareth Snell, who are uh, two Labour MPs in one in the Midlands seat and one in the Northern seat, where the majority of their constituents um, voted leave, was of some was of some significance when um, it wasn't wasn't discussed in the House of Commons. But the bottom line in this is is the parliamentary arithmetic is always depended on some kind of tacit support from the Labour Party. And I say tacit because abstentions would have made a difference too. I think, yeah, I think there's structural forces acting on the Labour Party that just make that so difficult. Yeah. And, I mean, this, is, this isn't exactly what we sketched out, but there is this thing of, like, Labour's stated position is congruent with the substance of the withdrawal agreement, why can't they just peel off 30 of their votes and give it to it? And it's like they can't. I don't think, I one, I don't think Jeremy Corbyn had, I think even if he said, okay, fine, we've got a deal, I don't know that his party would follow him. And I think this government, and we're in just such an environment of hating politicians, hating the political process, hating this deal, which has become, rightly or wrongly, known as Theresa May's deal, I just feel like any Labour MP is just thinking, do I want this stamped on my career forever? And the answer's got to be no. And they just they, there's just a political reality that they can't, I think, is what's happening there. Well, I think that that's true, but I think that there's also a more complicated political reality that at some point the Labour Party uh, has got to come face to face with. And, and, and that is, is how uh, a not insignificant section of its electorate is going to respond to the fact that it has basically acted as an impediment to the United Kingdom leaving the European Union. Now, clearly, there's a, a very significant part of the Labour Party in terms of members and a pretty significant part in terms of voters that do want the Labour Party to be a party that is committed to the United Kingdom staying in the European Union. But there is also a significant number of Labour voters um, not just, I think, those who voted leave, but in those parts of the country that where the majority voted leave, but where there are also people who voted remain who are committed to the idea that the the vote in its democratic element, um, i.e. the result, should be um, honoured, uh, are going to find that it's, it, it will cost them votes, the stance that the Labour Party has uh, taken. And I think it is quite difficult to explain once you factor having a referendum into it, why a party that actually hasn't, on the whole, got any substantive disagreement with what's in the withdrawal deal, sorry, the withdrawal treaty, and which would have to have the withdrawal treaty pass in order to achieve things that its leadership says it wants, like the customs union, why they are voting against. Having said that, that you're right, is the explanation of why they are is to do with partisan politics and that they do not want to be seen as um, giving support and to what the Conservative government is doing. And I think, you know, in that lies 
know, the deep, if you like, uh, complexity of trying to achieve the UK's withdrawal um, from the European Union via essentially or through the authority of a referendum result and then having a, a government in parliamentary politics, in this case one that now hasn't got a parliamentary majority, trying to implement it. Because in that political context, the instinct of the opposition party is going to be to oppose whatever commitments it has previously made about honouring the referendum result. There's also just something constitutionally weird about being in a situation where it is on the leader of the opposition to back the government, even if that's their, their state. That's not what the leader of op- the opposition does in our system. And I think essentially Labour, politically, they're gambling that most voters aren't processing it in the way they that you describe. They're not processing it in terms of thinking, well, I'm a Labour Leave voter in a, you know, Leave seat, and I want my MP to enact Brexit, therefore I expect them to vote for the withdrawal agreement. They're processing it in terms of, do I like politicians, the political process, and the government? No, therefore I'll back the main alternative. And I think Labour's gambling that people are going to be making decisions more in terms of the latter train of thought than the former. And, I mean, so far, it doesn't seem like they're obviously wrong. I mean, I'm sure plenty of people are thinking it through in the way you describe, but it seems like plenty more will back Labour out of a sort of reflexive anti-politics. I, I, I don't know. I don't know about that. I mean, I think that the thing is, I think it's not generalisable amongst Labour voters. And I think if you look at the detail of the Newport West by-election, um, which was a constituency um, where the majority had voted leave, is that, that wasn't a particularly encouraging vote for Labour, result for Labour, even though Labour held on onto the right. seat. I think that what happens, I mean, and this is true for both political parties, is, is that they have not had um, an encounter, let's put it more neutrally than I was going to say, <laughs> an encounter with the electorate um, since we have gone down the, the position of having the withdrawal agreement voted down three times by um, Parliament. Uh, and it, it is going to be very interesting to see what happens um, when large numbers of voters, um, because not all seats have, not all parts of the country have local elections. Um, and if the European Parliament elections do occur, um, that will be obviously um, everybody in the country having a chance to vote in at least one um, election. It is going to be interesting to see how the voters react to all the the political parties that have been um, involved um, in this. Yeah, absolutely. And even the EU elections might not be indicative of what people decide to do in a general election. And you can phrase it the other way is... Yeah, Labour have sort of... I mean, they've just fudged it, essentially, right? They've tried to find... But there's another way of looking at it, which is, given that this is probably the least stable government in what? Pick your time span. Why are Labour still neck and neck in the polls? Why aren't they leading by 20 points, you know? And... Well, Labour have been leading in the last week's polls or so, because what has happened that hasn't happened before uh, is that the Conservative voters is really um, collapsed in the last week. So um, you have 
I mean, the Labour vote has come down too, but you're talking about both of the main parties shedding votes in the opinion polls. It's just that um, the Conservatives are shedding them even more rapidly than Labour um, is, um, is shedding um, them. And the, the beneficiaries, uh, on the whole, have been the, um, the pro-Brexit parties um, and the um, UK ch- change. I've actually got the change UK. Change, change, UK, change UK, UK, yeah. That's going to be the new name of the, the uh, independent um, group. But it's really quite striking, I think, how far in opinion polls since the turn of the year, because Labour have been um, losing votes for other reasons since the turn of the year, how far the two main parties have come down in, in the polling, particularly given the fact that the two main parties had done collectively so well in the 2017 general election and, and reversed what had been a, a situation where both of them had, had fallen some way from what their the, the peaks, if you like, of two-party politics, you would expect them to, where they, where they had been in, in the past. But we look like, from at least the last week or so's polling, that we're back into very considerable fragmentation. I mean, I think it was always an oversimplification, a significant oversimplification, to say that we, we went back to two-party politics at the 2017 general election, because that entirely ignores the Scottish situation, um, where the majority party... Um, is not one of the two main parties, and it ignores the fact that the uh, a minority, uh, uh, sorry, a small party was providing supplying confidence to the minority government. I mean, the polls you're referencing, though, are those general election polls or EU? Because... They're a mixture of they've been asking general election questions and European Parliament elections. And when it comes to European Parliament elections, the the results of the Conservatives are even more dismal than they are in the general election ones. My only thought there is, like, if I'm a Conservative Brexit voter. I can vote for a Brexit party in the EU referendum because I don't really care about that election anyway, and it's it's proportional representation with lists, right? Yeah. So I can protest vote reasonably safely, but then if I'm, like, in a Tory Labour marginal seat in the general, I'm still going to vote Tory come the general. So it wouldn't surprise me if they sort of switched and switched back yeah, again. Yeah, I think that the, uh, the Conservatives might hope that, but I think that they'll find that if they are not able to deliver any kind of Brexit whatsoever... That um, that is going to be a massive problem for them in the general election. Yes. Okay. So let's pivot to um, another factor. We talked about the structural constraining factors. Yeah. We talked about um, just pure happenstance. Like, does the speaker allow this? Um, which are obviously huge. I think there's another element which I wanted to talk to you about, which is the role of political ideology in this, because it does seem like. We've talked a lot about the structural stuff, and correctly so, it's very important. But there has been a thing where we have, I'll I'll give you my opinion and you tell me why it's wrong, Um, where we've consistently overrated, sorry, underrated the extent to which people are motivated by purely ideological commitments. So it was generally expected all the way through the referendum that Remain would win. And the the because you know it, it's in our economic interests or whatever, and the motivating effects of ideas like nationalism and take back control and various ideas about democracy were just much more powerful than anybody in the elite expected. But then since the referendum, you've had the reverse effect where it's like 
okay, the public voted for Brexit. Um, now what sort of Brexit do we get? How do we structure this? And there's been an underrating of how violent the ideological backlash against that is going to be and how um, trenchant it's going to be and how people are going to say, we want this second referendum, which I think is really just code for we want to remain, even in the face of like, we can do some hyper soft Norway plus or whatever, there's going to be a hardcore of people who will not be moved from that position, mainly for like, like, even if you're offering you, you can have everything we want from the EU, everything, all the freedom of movement, whatever, just symbolically let us leave to just satisfy the result. They still won't have it. And on both sides of the coin, people haven't realised that people are not responding to purely rational incentives. They're responding to attachment to ideas about what democracy is and what it is to be free and sovereign, what it is to be a pluralistic, you know, what, what have you. So I just wanted to, that's my view, certainly not ideology is the only driving component. But it's a big driving component that's been discounted um, to our detriment. So let me put that back to you. Yeah, I think that there's a, there's a lot in that. I think if we go back, um, you know, during the referendum campaign itself, is that uh, the Prime Minister, David Cameron, and his advisers thought that the campaign could be won by essentially suggesting that um, it would be economically very problematic to leave the European um, Union and that the, the European Union provided Britain with a set of economic um, advantages and that the things that might be you know, potentially politically problematic about the EU's direction of travel were things that the Cameron government had supposedly taken care of by the renegotiations in particular, taking, you know, um, getting Britain essentially an opt-out, although it wasn't legalised, of um, the move to the union. And it turned out that there were any number of um, voters who simply did not think in, in those terms, uh, partly, I think, because one part of the, the Leave coalition, and it was a broad coalition with um, constituted by a range of different um, constituencies and with different um, views, but the one part of it, the, the least well-off part of the, the, the Leave um, coalition, just didn't simply, didn't think it had anything to lose in the same way. So if you kind of like fight a campaign saying these things are going to, uh, are going to these material advantages are going to disappear. If you haven't got a sense that you've got those material advantages in the first place, it's not really a very weak, it's not really a very robust um, argument. And I think that you're right in that there were a significant part, perhaps not always the same part of the Leave Coalition that had a strong set of um, commitments um, to the idea of democracy and a, a quite strong idea about what democracy was supposed to be. And they looked at the European Union, they didn't see that as something that was a was democratic. They thought of it and still think of it as profoundly undemocratic in a, a number of um, ways. And I think that what's happened since, as you say, on the on the other side is is that there has been much stronger um, pro EU arguments being made by people than have ever been made in British politics um, before. Um, and that that is not just about a specific set of 
the economic arrangements that are beneficial um, to the groups of people who are most likely to make these arguments, namely the freedom of movement um, issue. But they are about Europe, the, the EU as an ideal, as a cosmopolitan ideal, as in some sense a, a symbol of you know, connectedness, togetherness in a changing internationalised world, however we want to um, describe um, that and they have reacted to the the referendum as something that is fundamentally a challenge to the way that they want not just Britain but Europe the world in some sense um, to be and they see giving into Brexit uh, in those in, in those terms as conceding something that for them is fundamentally ideologically um, problematic and so. It isn't just a case of, I think, of them saying that there were, you know, like things wrong with the way the referendum was fought from their um, point of view, concerns um, about some of the things that were said by the, the Leave campaign. I don't think actually a second referendum that was won by Leave, if it were won by Leave, I mean by that, would fundamentally change their objection to what has happened, is, is that we now have a, a not insignificant group of, you know, who are ideologically committed um, to the idea of the European Union. Now, I, I think that there are times when that concept of what the or that idea of what the European Union is, in the way in which these arguments are made, is rather removed from the actual reality and actuality of the, the European Union. It's a very idealised European Union that's being turned into an ideological commitment here. But that is part of what ideological commitments do. So it doesn't change the fact that it's become an important part of our of, of UK politics. And there is a thing where, like, agree or disagree with ideological commitments. It doesn't help necessarily to just dismiss, which is what's happening, both sides are doing this, to just dismiss the other sides as purely irrational. They're not purely rational. They're emotional commitments as much as they are rational. But I think... Um, on the Remain side, they see um, the the whole Leave commitment to nationalism as just an explosion of, at best, irrationality and, at worst, outright bigotry and prejudice. And I think, on like you say, on the Leave side, they see the 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 ideals that people are reading into the EU as wholly fantastical and counterfactual. Um, my point would just be, if you want to understand what's happened, you have to understand that people really do believe these things and are motivated to maintain political stances by them. I agree with you. I mean, there's no way that you can understand what is happening uh, in terms of the ways in which voters think about um, Brexit without bringing um, emotion into it. Absolutely. I mean, it is also the case that emotion isn't going to get the country very far in trying to deal <laughs> with, with what to do about the question of whether Britain should persist in trying to leave the um, European Union or if it were to stay in the European Union, how it would stabilise its membership in the, the European Union. Because a pretty significant part of the domestic political problem now is the very fact of the disagreement, the intensity of the disagreement amongst many voters, the, the extent to which the disagreement is bound up with so much emotion that makes finding any common ground really quite um, difficult. 
Uh, and that is, I think, very problematic in a context in which whether the UK is inside the European Union or outside the European Union, it is, aside from anything else, a constitutional question. Uh, and if there isn't much consensus and if, isn't, if, there isn't, if it isn't possible for there to be much consensus because of the polarisation about what constitutional order there can be for the United Kingdom, then we've got some pretty, pretty difficult politics ahead of us. I just don't know. I mean, I think people start at the end point and work backwards. They sort of start with the idea of we have to reach consensus and think, well, what's the map there? And at the moment, I don't see what the route on that map looks like. And I'm happy to just be honest and say, I don't, if you're saying we have to get back to consensus, I don't know that that's happening anytime soon. And it's happening, and there's structural reasons for that, but there's also ideological reasons, and it's people have emotional attachments that run different ways. But also, I'll introduce another element, is they have emotional attachments to the same thing, but understand what that is, both in theory and practice, in very different ways. Um, And democracy would be at the heart of um, this. So um, in one of your columns recently that I read, you talked about how there's already been a tension within the EU between two different conceptions of what democracy could mean. One, procedural in terms of um, equal access to democracy, and one, more outcomes-based in terms of the ability of people to vote for a policy or a system of governance that they want. Um, And then Brexit has just made that writ large. Actually, should we start there? I just very crudely characterised your last bit of work. No, that's fine. Um, but it seems to me like like it's not just like one bunch of people says we want democracy and another bunch of people says we, we want some other thing. It's actually both sides would view themselves as Democrats, but they have very different conceptions of that concept, right? No, absolutely. I mean, if you look within the, within the EU itself, and, and this goes way beyond um, the Brexit, You've got the people who, who worry that the EU's compromised its democratic values um, by turning a blind eye to what is going, some of the things that are going on in Hungary and Poland uh, in, um, in particular, and the ways uh, in which the, the government, so the Orban government perhaps um, most of all in, in Hungary, clearly violates what have been historically understood to be liberal democratic norms. Then you've got the other other groups of people who, who look at the, the European Union itself, its collective decision making, and, and they think that there's not a great deal of democracy in that, and that the European Parliament, which is supposed to be the, if you like, the most democratic part of the, the European um, Union, does not have the um, authority uh, in the ways, in the, in the same ways in which national um, parliaments um, do, and executive decision making within the European um, Union uh, isn't accountable in the same way to electorates because there isn't a European electorate as such for it, a single European electorate for it to be accountable to. In the national democratic politics of um, member states, um, and, you know, and that's just you know, that basic level, we can find any number of other ways in which what looks like the democratic good bit to some people looks like the democratic bad, the undemocratic bad bit um, to um, 
two others. But I think that, I mean, to go back to your broader point, I mean, I agree with you in the sense it is pretty difficult to see how, in the UK's case, we get to anything like sufficient consensus to re-establish uh, a constitutional order that um, has, to which there is relatively broad um, consent. You know, and if you looked at it, you know, from a historical perspective, you might be quite pessimistic because you would say, well, when you get these kind of um, clashes, is that you only get back to some semblance of order when one side very clearly gets politically defeated. Way, so I think that um, in the United Kingdom, it does require a lot, a lot of thought as to how, whatever the outcome now turns out to be, how there is going to be more consent to it than would be the case if we just reached the point tomorrow of either the UK leaving or the UK um, staying. There would have to be you know, a, a political commitment to try to broaden the amount of um, consent that there is to whichever option that we end up with. Which I don't see on either side. I think whatever we did, the other side would feel that that was not just the wrong outcome, but the illegitimate one. It would, but... but <laughs> I mean, I think that we... You know, I can... Um, I think one can be overly pessimistic about these things in the sense that um, we can just take, you know, like the here and now as it is with this hyper-polarised frenzy kind of politics and say this is the way it's going to be as far as we can as far as we can see um things can change quite quickly too and that i think that you know there were certain points along the way and i would say probably in the run-up to the 2017 general election where it looked like um the issue not was being settled in favor of the uk leaving but in the period between article 50 being uh, invoking Article 50 being passed by the House of Commons, and then the, the general election result, there seemed to be less discontent than there has been before. This pos- position that the UK is in at the moment of having a minority government that actually, to all intents and purposes, doesn't have a majority in the House of Commons, even on a supply and confidence um, basis any longer, is really adding to the uh, the sharpness of the conflict that is taking um, place because what's at stake is not only what to do about Brexit but which party is going to be in power once there is a general election um, and that is obviously um, something that a situation where if you had a general election and you ended up with a political party with a larger majority a relatively substantial uh, majority would be a different kind of political situation than the one we're in at the moment now, the counter-argument to that is, is it's not easy to see at the moment how we're going to have a general election which is going to produce a substantial majority. But I still think it isn't the case that we're going to be stuck in this particular place for five, ten years, you know, you know, you know in, into infinity, so to speak. Okay, yeah, so you can definitely imagine um, counterfactuals in which we're at, if not a perfectly unified, a much more unified place. So Theresa May doesn't call that election, or say she calls it and wins 100 seats, then we're not where we are. Um, I think one reason I'm, I won't even say pessimistic, I'll merely say not optimistic that we end in this place of constitutional unity, is it seems to me, 
Um, and tell me if I'm wrong both in my factual claim and in how it impacts this, that one of the principal facts of many Western democracies over the last 30, 40 years is a breakdown of public trust in both politicians and the political process and in their feelings of the, le- the legitimacy of the political process. And increasingly, it's not just people, people have always gone, uh, politics, but increasingly it, it's a hatred and a desire to punish those politicians. And we now are living in societies, or at least in the UK and the US, where the majority of people don't feel any sort of connection to their politicians and the political process, and in fact feel profoundly alienated from it. Now, could, in a moment of national constitutional crisis, some exceptional politician find a way through, even in spite of that fact? Yes, I I mean, I think that's possible. But I think as we do confront difficult decisions in the modern age, we're always going to be swimming against that current that people simply don't trust their systems of governance anymore. And that's always going to be um, something that it's just going to be a weight, a, a, a counterforce against our ability to find unity in moments like this. It's not going to be impossible, but it's going to make it much more difficult than it would have been 20, 30, 40 years ago. I don't agree um, about that. Uh, in, there's no doubt that um, that there is a, a more general um, crisis of confidence. I don't, I don't want to overuse, overuse the word crisis, but uh, a general, at least, strong atmosphere of distrust. Um, and that what has happened um, with Brexit is only, on both sides, for different reasons, fueled that um distrust. I think, though, that what we're looking at is not getting to something that could be described as unity. Uh, I don't think that that's ever really the basis of constitutional um, orders, is that what we're looking need to get to is more consensus than there is at the moment, which is not the same thing as unity. Uh, uh, And is that now, in the case of the United Kingdom, I think that that this is particularly fraught, or made more fraught, I should say, by the fact that the constitutional order in relation to the multinational state of the United Kingdom is not stable either. So that if we look at the way things are um, at the moment, we have you know, very weak towards non-existence governance arrangements for England. We have a dominant party in Scotland that is committed to the end of the union, uh, and in Northern Ireland, we have the devolved institutions having been suspended um, for more than two years now. So even, and we've had, you know, a referendum on the breakup of the, the Great Britain part of the Union, the Union of England and Wales with, with Scotland um, four and a half, only four and a half years ago. So I think you would say that even if you, Brexit, the Brexit referendum hadn't um, happened and everything that's happened since hadn't happened, you would still be looking at a constitutional order that was in some difficulty. And now we've compounded that um, by everything that's happened since June 10, June 2016, or including the run-up to June 2016. So I think that in the case of the United Kingdom, we've reached a point where we have to face some really quite fundamental constitutional questions. It's not start again, 
but engage in national serious reflection about what kind of constitutional arrangements that we want uh, and how um, they can be legitimated and how the UK's membership or not of the European Union um, fits in um, to that. Because I think that what we've seen is, is that over Brexit is, is that you know, we tried to deal with a question of constitutional politics, like what constitutional order the United Kingdom is um, part of. Referendum that then had to be implemented by parliamentary um, politics, in which the people who not only proposed the referendum but voted for it in the House of Commons by a very large majority didn't take into consideration really what the constitutional consequences of having a referendum that would lead to a lead vote um, would um, be. We've now got a much more polarised politics as a consequence of, of all this. We find it very difficult to deal with the Brexit question itself without, as we were talking about earlier, becoming a matter of partisan politics between the government and the opposition, regardless of what commitments have been made um, to voters about the uh, referendum um, result. And I don't think that we can carry on as we are. Now, I'm not completely pessimistic about getting to the point where we can get to somewhere better, but I think that we've got to have, we've got to go through some quite difficult things too, still, to be able to get to anything where we, where we get into a, a broader consensus than exists presently for the constitutional arrangements in which we have. Why do you think... I mean, do you think I'm right in my characterization that we do seem to be just on this downward trend in terms of um, belief in government and politicians and their legitimacy, um, at least in, say, the US and the UK, although it seems like France and Italy are having similar moments? And if, and if that is a, a reasonable characterization, why? What, what's, what's, what's pushing us down that slope? Like, I don't know. I think I think that it's. I, I think that the first answer to the answer to your first question is is that in the case of the UK, I think it is is complicated by the fact that the the referendum the, refer, the referendum on the the winning side of it on the leave side of it you know anyway, it would appear a, a general belief that the politicians would now do what they said that they were going to do, which was to implement the decision that was made. So. If you had a complete breakdown of trust in the politicians, I think you would have had a lot more cynicism early on um, about the ability of um, the politicians to deliver um, Brexit. And I think you can see this in terms of the fact it's taken as long as it has for the Conservative Party support to really implode in a way in which it's done in the last um, couple of um, weeks. Do you not um, think, though, so. it might not have been a majority element, but there was an element of that vote, which was like, this'll show them. It was it was a rebuke that, I, I, I to the establishment. Yeah, there's no doubt that I think that there's no doubt that um, well two things. First of all that the was coalition of, of different voters expressing um, their opinions about different things uh, and the ways in which that, that related to the European Union itself and Britain's membership of the European Union. I think, varied across the Leave um, coalition. I think there was a, certainly an element of that coalition that did want to express its profound discontent 
um, with the political status quo, including to some extent, I've said this before, simply almost taking away something in terms of European Union membership that it saw that on the whole the political class was significantly attached to. So a part of it becomes, you know, well, if you like it that much, then we've got our chance to take it away from you as it's, you know, as a, and we're doing that because we, we kind of want to express how alienated um, we are from the way that you're governing um, us. Nonetheless, there's still in the actual expression of that vote, a, it would appear a belief that those politicians would then, or politicians would then actually um, take the vote seriously and act on the basis of that vote um, to move to Britain, leaving the European, to the United Kingdom, leaving the European Union. And it does look to me that the confidence that that, um, the confidence that that would happen is only something that really fell away really quite late on, like I, in, in the last, in the last, um, in the last couple of weeks or so. Well, yeah, I mean, I think if there's a narrative I'm telling about a general collapse of public trust, Brexit is both a symptom and a contributing factor towards that, right? Like, if people really trusted their elites, they wouldn't have voted for Brexit, because pretty much the, the not all of it, but the bulk of elite opinion was for Remain. And they didn't. And then the fact that they were given a seemingly clear, possibly clear instruction to do this thing, and have seemingly just not been able to, um, is going to further erode that trust, right? It's both cause and effect, but... It's, but Brexit's maybe exacerbated that process, but it doesn't seem like it was something out the blue. It seems like we have been feeling this way, or a large number of have been feeling this way about our politicians for some time. Yeah, I think in this sense is that what the, the referendum has done has been to expose something as being true rather than to create something yes. as being um, true is it, it, it basically, if you like, ripped the bandage off a wound uh, for everybody to see in one way or another since the, the referendum has, since, since the referendum um, took place. And, and the fact that, um, that so many people, not least the MPs themselves, I think, didn't really consider the possibility, and certainly David Cameron didn't appear to consider the possibility, um, that Leave could win um, is um, is a pretty problematic state that politics got into, regardless of what one thinks about the rights and wrongs of the UK leaving the, the European Union. Because I think I think it's reasonable to say that you know when Parliament, when the House of Commons voted by a six to one majority to hold this referendum, that almost all the MPs who don't want to, pretty much, I'm sure, all the MPs who don't want to leave the the European Union thought it was safe to vote for said referendum because I didn't think there was any realistic possibility that the referendum would turn out as it did. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, their judgment about, you know, like what voters, how voters were likely to respond to being asked this question was completely wide of the mark. And that has, I think, you know, had ongoing ongoing um, political consequences because 
we now get arguments which in some sense have got quite a lot of merit to them about the problem of trying to deal with a question like this via a referendum. Right. But they are the arguments to be made before you have a referendum and reasons for not having one in the first place, not that can readily be made by those on the losing side of the referendum after the referendum has taken place. Yeah, I mean, I'll quickly say this as an aside. Um, You know, I won't hide my preferences, I voted Remain, but there does seem to be on the Remain side just a contradiction, which is like... If you would accept the result of a second referendum, why won't you accept the result of the first, right? Or, you know, and if you really just say, what do they say, constitutional change shouldn't be decided by plebiscite. Okay, that's a point of view. That's a fair point of view. Um, But then if you're committed to that point of view, then you presumably would be okay with a future Tory government deciding to have Brexit without a confirmatory public vote. And no, of course you wouldn't be fine with that. It's just special pleading. You just want to remain in the EU. So I think both sides are not coherent in what they view as legitimate um, in terms of it is a public vote or is it parliament or whatever. That's a bit of an aside, but I, I do find it frustrating on both sides, frankly. No, absolutely, I agree. But there's there's a contradiction on both sides, isn't there? Because if you're... It seems like there's a base of, like, I'm stereotyping here, but, like, young people who live in college towns or something, right, who are very, very pro-Corbyn, but also very, very pro-Remain. And actually, if you want a lot of the stuff that Corbyn's talking about, that seems like it would be much more realistic outside of the EU. And then, I mean, I wonder if it would happen anyway. I wonder if you had a Corbyn government, whether he could, he would fail to command a majority in his own party in the same way that Theresa May has. I think that could certainly happen. Um, But it does seem like a contradiction, and and Corbyn himself seems aware of the contradiction. He seems to be genuinely a mild Eurosceptic. who just can't touch Brexit for political reasons. But there is a bit of a contradiction between being super pro-Corbyn and super pro-EU, right? I think that um, there's so many contradictions in all the in, 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 in everything that's uh, in everything that's happened. I mean, I think two reactions to that. I think first of all, it's an open question as to what would be constrained under a Corbyn government in policy terms by. EU membership. I think that in the case of a member state that's not in the euro, that the constraints on a centre-left government as far to the left as Corbyn's would be from the centre uh, are much less than they are for the eurozone um, states. I don't think it's a coincidence that the centre-left in most of the eurozone states, not all of them, have the difficulties um, in which that they uh, in which they have had, and then I think though that the, the second thing, that, and this really is interesting, I think, is about Corbyn, is that Corbyn didn't make any pretense about who he was in relation to the European Union question during the the leadership contest in 2015, and after the referendum the first thing that happened within the Labour Party was an attempt to remove him, essentially over the EU question, the candidate that was put up against him, Owen Smith, pretty much said he was going to agree with what Jeremy Corbyn was agreeing with, what Jeremy Corbyn was doing about every other issue, is that, but that he was pro-Remain and would 
turn the Labour Party into a into a Remain party. And yet, um, you know, Jeremy Corbyn won that second leadership election, you know, very easily. Um, so <laughs> we've then had, a, since then, you know, a general election in which the Labour Party um, basically stood on a manifesto of leaving the European Union, and that also didn't really dent the view that many Labour voters had of him as someone who should be leading a party um, that was committed to um, remain. Now, I think that we've seen in the last probably six months or so that slowly, slowly, he's been pushed further away from the position that he would like to, uh, he would like, left to his own devices, um, have um, adopted. But in one sense, I think it, it is odd that the... the um, the Labour Party membership and Corbyn were able to stay um, as far apart as they were from each other on the EU question for as long as that they were. And as I say, in retrospect, I think it might look a little odd to historians how he how he won that second leadership contest in 2016 as handsomely as he did, given where he's now ended up. I think my answer to why he won it would be it actually people weren't really voting on the EU membership at all, even though arguably they should have been because it was the existential crisis of our day. They were voting on um, a reflexive dislike and distrust of political elites who they saw as ha being out of touch and having... <sighs> I always get in trouble when I use the word neoliberal because people point out the problems with that, but essentially like a sort of pro-market, business-friendly, Tony Blair-y, right, type governance of the Labour Party um, that they no longer view as legitimately able to speak for them. And Corbyn, in a way, is a bit like there's an element to Corbyn that's like the element to Brexit I pointed out, which is like that'll teach them. You know what I mean? That'll show them. And I think there's an element where voters are well aware that the par parliamentary party loathes Corbyn, and that's sort of part of his appeal in many ways. That, and I think that was what it was about. It was about. So I've I'm not an academic. I've worked most of my professional career for um, political candidates, and I think we talk about elites and um, bases. There's also sort sort of like a mid level who are people who maybe show up to deliver leaflets or like post about it on Facebook and whatever. And both with the U.S. Democrats and with both political parties in the U.K., the elites and the mid level have completely fallen out of trust with each other. And what you see in Bernie Sanders, what you see in Corbyn, is the mid-level essentially putting one of their guys in to fuck with the elites, essentially. I think that's how I would interpret that Cor Corbyn victory, which then, like you say, it's completely incoherent in terms of policy preferences. But I think that would be my story as to, as to why that happened. No, I agree. I mean, the thing is, is that Owen Smith um, could talk the talk about delivering Corbynite policies, but he didn't have the credentials to do it uh, in the way in which um, um, Corbyn himself did, or appears to have anyway. I, I think that it is nonetheless striking, though, that he had a quite as easy time as he did second time round, given the fact that the membership since 
has moved into a position of putting a lot of pressure on the leadership about the party's you know, EU stance. And in that sense, I think that this goes back to the point that I was making earlier, that since the referendum, the polarisation, I think, has actually on all sides increased rather than diminished. So if you look at it in terms of saying, well, actually, there was a clear opportunity immediately after the referendum to turn Labour into an unequivocal Remain party that wasn't taken, even by Labour to be more of a Remain party than Jeremy Corbyn um, wanted it um, to be. I think part of the explanation of that is, is that actually opinions on all sides, you know, like have simply hardened. Not a, I'm not saying there isn't anybody... Within, the par- within Parliament or amongst voters' opinion, hasn't hardened during the period. But the people with the, the strongest views, whether they be that those who are committed to overturning um, the referendum result in the UK staying in the um, European Union, or whether it become whether it's those who became in favour of of no deal, Brexit with, with no no transition, have simply moved further apart, further and further apart from um, each other, and taken more and more people with them. I wonder, okay, sorry, just I'm wasting your time, but whenever I have someone really interesting on the phone, I want to, like, get the things that I'm actually legitimately wondering about. So you've said so many times, or you and David have said so many times, it's getting three down to two, right? That's the challenge of Brexit. I've got a vague, unresearched, spurious hunch that when we finally get it down to two, it's going to be hard Brexit versus Remain that the one that's going to fall away is going to be the the withdrawal agreement. And my reasoning for that is everyone's been saying, like, oh, Theresa May's got to use the threat of no deal to get Labour on board, or um, of no Brexit to get the ERG on board, right? Which seems tactically true, but that assumes that the end goal is the withdrawal agreement. And actually, even though that somehow is the compromise choice, right... Um, and, like, surely if you did ranked choice voting and you counted second preferences, that's what would win, either in Parliament or the public. People really believe in Remain, and they, there's, a, there's a core of people who really believe in not just Brexit, but hard Brexit, in a way that they won't be talked down to their second preference. And there's a hardcore cluster of both of those groups in Parliament, and there's a hardcore cluster of both of them in the population. And maybe even added together, they're not a majority, but they really believe it, and they just won't be fucking talked into anything else. And... I just wonder if eventually that's what it'll come down to, is the the people who really believe in what they say. Because um, nobody, nobody feels that way about the withdrawal agreement. Nobody feels hell or high water. This is where I stand. I will sacrifice my other priorities for this. I will make poor strategic decisions for this. I am not budging from... Nobody feels that way about the withdrawal agreement. Maybe Theresa May does. I but... Theresa May does. <laughs> um, I think that I, I absolutely see where you're coming from, um, Miss um, Toby. I think there is a dynamic that has come into play on the side of those who want to leave without a withdrawal agreement is that they've become, I'm not saying correctly at all, I'm simply 
observing here, ever more convinced that, if you like, that the middle way, the withdrawal agreement um, and a transition period and then more negotiations is a way ultimately of what they think of as trapping the UK in the European Union. So that even if they'd started off in a position where they thought that the UK should leave, leave, leave via Article 50 and the withdrawal agreement, they've now convinced themselves that that is simply a way in which Remain ultimately wins, in part by making the process even more you know, protracted over a long um, period um, of time. So I think they and got a narrative in which that there is only one way to leave, and that is to leave with a dramatic break, because every other way of leaving, starting with the withdrawal agreement, leads back to staying in the in the end. So I think that um, in that sense, that there's there's quite a bit to. Um, what you're saying, and I, and I would say that the um, desire um, on those who want to stay in the European Union has intensified and not diminished since June 2016. I think, though, that you know, there's still a lot of people in the UK who wouldn't sign up to either of these positions. And I think that there's um, people who do want to leave, but do have quite significant economic worries about what doing so um, dramatically and without a transition agreement would mean, even if they won't necessarily lose that language. And I think you have you know, a not insignificant section of the main voters who do think that the, the referendum result should be so I think we can overdo the the polarisation because the ones that have the firmest opinions are often the loudest about making them known um, on both sides. I also think you can't really rule out as a uh, you can't really discount with a better way of putting it the fact that Theresa May is a whatever else she may have in terms of quality she's an extremely poor communicator. And so I think that, for instance, if you'd have more of Michael going with a withdrawal agreement, I think you would have... I'm not saying that that would have meant it would have had enough votes in, in, in Parliament, but I, I think it would have at least somewhat changed the political context um, in which this was, in this was um, playing out. And so I, I think that... I, I'm not saying for a moment that I think the most likely outcome now... Uh, is that the withdrawal agreement will eventually, on however many times it goes to Parliament in the end, um, pass. But I don't think we should absolutely rule it out as a as a as a possibility. Uh, it would involve significant changes to the um, political um, declaration, and it would cause havoc for both um, political parties. And in that sense, you might say, well, it's a very low probability um, outcome um, now. The counter-argument to that is that both of the ones that you say become the binary are really, really radical things to do. I mean, both leaving the European Union without a transition uh, and 
either revoking Article 50 or or having another referendum. Now, having a referendum, another referendum might not seem like a very radical thing to do, but I think once you get into the difficulties of like how how you actually what you actually are asking this referendum question, and how you could have a referendum that isn't really stacked so strongly and remains favour in terms of the question that was asked that make it very difficult for Remain um, not to win before you get into arguments about whether the franchise should be the same as it was um, last time. And you certainly would get arguments made that the franchise needed to, needed to change. Then I think that having a second referendum pushed by people who have never accepted the outcome of the first referendum with the clear intent of trying to overturn the outcome of the first referendum is a radical thing to do a very radical thing to do. And so it doesn't mean that these either of these radical things can't happen. I think the second of them is more likely than the first of them, much more likely than the first of them. You but think it's more likely we do a second referendum than we have a no deal? I do, yes. Okay. Um, I, I think, though, we shouldn't at all underestimate what, um, what a really radical political moment that would be. It would. Here's the thing, though. Whatever story you tell about where we go forward, I can tell a story that it still it just comes down to no deal versus remain. So say we <laughs> say say we have a second referendum. You have to have both deal and no deal on the table, right? You can't just have remain versus the deal because that then that that is just a, a protracted way of getting to remain, right? It would completely lack legitimacy. Maybe that's what we do, but you have to have a three-way referendum. What happens in the event that no single option wins? Well, if you do a runoff between your top two options, that'll be remain and no deal. You'll probably get, what, like 40-40-20 on that question? And then then you end up with remain and no deal as your final two. So I don't know, whatever story you tell... You can tell a story where you end up with the ones people really believe in. But say you did ranked choice voting, then you probably get the deal as everyone's second preference. But then you've got this bizarre thing where a majority of MPs are committing to something they don't necessarily agree with and is basically the first choice of quite a small minority of their voters. That's just really weird, and I don't know how that holds up. Well, I, I don't know, though. I think that a majority of MPs left to their own devices in a secret ballot would vote for the withdrawal agreement. I mean, you can argue about what they would then vote for in the, in the political um, declaration. But I would think that if they didn't have to be responsible as an individual for bringing it about for different reasons in terms of their vote being made um, public, my and I, I'm obviously guessing, but my guess is, is that the majority of MPs actually think the least problematic thing to do is to leave with a withdrawal um, agreement. And I think that you know, there's clearly nothing like a majority in favour of no deal in Parliament, miles away from a majority. But I think if you look at the votes on um, the referendum and revoke, um, if you discount the one on which Corbyn basically um, had the Labour Party whip on, three-line whip on referendum uh, in the interests of party management because it was an indicative vote rather than something where consequences would follow from the outcome of the vote. It's not clear to me that there is 
anything like majority support for a second referendum um, in Parliament. Just to be dumb, though, um, that's a brilliant question. Just to make a stupid point, um, (laughs) I can still tell a story there, though, where it comes down to Remain versus No Deal, because let's remove the constraint of knowing how our MPs vote, right? It's a blind, it's a, uh, whatever you called it, a blind vote. Um, And then let's accept the premise that a second referendum is just a fancy means of getting back to remain. Well, the second referendum, that was up there, I forget the exact totals, but it was that and the common market that were, like, close to a majority. Now, granted, straight revoke only got, what, like, 100 votes? But that was in a a thing where no party was backing it, and people knew how their MP was voting, right? So, um, leave MPs... Uh, Labour MPs in a leave seat couldn't possibly vote for that. But, saying no one knows how their MPs are voting, maybe it's the case that all the people who are voting for second referendum vote for what they really want, which is Remain. You even get a couple of dozen Tory MPs voting for it. You get the same hardcore ERG, maybe even some cabinet ministers going to... um, uh, the, 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 you just crash out, because that's what they really believe. And actually, once you remove the constraint that the public doesn't know how you voted, it's the withdrawal agreement that falls away, again. And the Remainers just show their true colours. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I think that the, the difficulty is, is or the, I mean, in some sense, that the, the second referendum faces the same difficulty that the withdrawal agreement faces. Uh, and that is that the Labour Party, on a consequential vote, the Labour leadership, I should say, has got to commit or not the Labour Party and whip for um, to a, a position that is problematic for the Labour Party. It is problematic for the Labour Party for the reasons that we discussed earlier to vote through the withdrawal agreement or to even to allow significant numbers of its MPs to abstain in ways that would allow the withdrawal agreement to pass. It is also problematic for the Labour Party to become the party that supports a second referendum. Not that there aren't advantages to the Labour Party, with some voters, indeed perhaps quite a lot of voters, from moving to that clearly and unequivocally to that position at a point of decision, but there is pretty clearly a price to pay for it in electoral terms too. And I think if you see it as the Labour leadership trying to allow things to happen without absolutely having to take a stance, we can explain quite a lot of where the Labour Party has been on the, the Brexit question. So whilst I see what you're saying, I still think the missing bit is is we've got to see a firm move from the Labour leadership to commit Labour to being a, a second referendum party in order for that state of affairs to come about. Yeah, and I mean, the blind voting constraint is completely counterfactual. Like, there's no suggestion anything like that is going to happen, right? No, absolutely not. I mean, they, they can't have secret ballots, so... Yeah, no, I was just playing with the counterfactual. Yeah, I mean, I... I mean, let's end, let's end, let's end. But I don't see this changing. I don't see... I think Labour have made the decision, and it may in fact be the correct strategic decision, that really just trying their darn best to not be pinned down for, to anything and to not vote for this thing either is their correct strategic option. I think that's what they've decided, and I don't... I think it would take a big shift in public opinion, a decisive election result, something to get them off that. I don't see the DUP or, like, 
you know, the hard Brexiteers changing. I don't see the sort of moderate, quote-unquote moderate Tories changing. I don't see anything. I, I, I think people have made their decisions based on reasons which we may not like, but are perfectly intelligible. Um... I don't. I don't see a majority for anything in this parliament ever. Basically, now I think that the it is quite difficult to see now how um, this House of Commons can decide anything. Uh, it's also, and this is where we get into a whole other level of complications. It's not for this discussion. It is difficult to see how this House of Commons comes to an end, given you know the combination of the Fixed Term Parliament Act, the DUP's position in it, the DUP's, DUP's um, relationship with um, Jeremy Corbyn, the views of um, parts of the Labour Part, Parliamentary Labour Party about Jeremy Corbyn's leadership of the party, the breakaway of Change UK. And there's a, quite a number of factors that are working to make it quite difficult to have a general election, even though in terms of Brexit, um, it's quite difficult to see, if not in, almost impossible to see how this parliament gets any further with it. So yeah, I mean, let's, that, that was my position before we got this long extension. That I just, I just see us ramming into the next deadline. I still just see us ramming into the next deadline. I know we we started by saying let's not make predictions, but we're just going to be here in six months again, right? <laughs> well, possibly, yeah, possibly. I mean, the only thing I'd say is is that quite a lot of things have happened that have taken people by surprise. Um, so I'm sure that politics is in part about events and there will be events that will happen in the next few months that none of us will have thought of them happening. This is and true. they will happen and they will have an impact. All right, Helen, listen, you've been tremendously generous with yeah. your time. I really value you coming on. If you want to tell people where they should go to check out Talking Politics, follow you, um, where would you like to direct our listeners yeah, to? Yeah, I'm, um, you, I'm on... The Talking Politics, it's just talkingpolitics.com, I'm pretty sure. Uh, and I'm also uh, on uh, Twitter on HelenHUT20. Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. So this has already been a longer episode, as I mentioned, but let me just talk about some of the great things that we've got coming up on this show. So... I did another Twitter poll, and I asked, you know, I did this longer thing on libertarianism, which ran to about six hours between all of the different episodes, and I've been doing a few more solo episodes recently, so I asked, you know, what what sort of percentage between solo episodes and interviews would you want to see on the podcast, and I gave a few different options, and it was pretty close, actually. We got, like, a decent spread. But the one that won was 30% solo, 70% interviews, and that's about my instinct, too. I think that sounds about right. The next was 50-50, which seems like slightly too much solo for me, and then I gave people the option of, like, basically all interviews or basically all solo, and those got a little bit less, although still some votes. So I decided, I think like somewhere in the range of like 30 to 40% solo seems about right for me. That way, if you're just here for the interviews, you still get plenty of them. But the people who've been telling me to make it only a solo project, they still get enough to keep them tuning in. I did another poll 
and I asked what people would like to see. I'm not going to make it quite as long as the libertarianism one, but I gave people the choice of John Stuart Mill, more political ideologies, or Machiavelli. And it was close, but Machiavelli won, which I really like because I've been wanting to talk about Machiavelli for a long time, and I haven't found the right guest to do it. And I'm going to give you something which, when I did the libertarianism series, I was giving you a very distinctive point of view, but I was telling a story that's been told by other academics, most notably Michael Frieden, also Kenneth Hoover. But I was telling a story that has been sort of researched and thought out by other people, and what I saw myself doing in that series was essentially popularising it. I'm going to bring you an original Machiavelli. And because it's me, I'm going to do an ideological analysis of how Machiavelli has been used. So I'm not going to try and be a historian of political thought and someone who reads him in his original language who can really go like, oh, this word means this and this word means this. I'm actually much more interested in how the name Machiavelli, how his ideas um, have been utilised um, and, and used for ideological projects in the modern age. And so I'm going to look specifically at the ideas of neo-Republican liberty, where people like Quentin Skinner and um, frequent guest of the podcast Philip Pettit have taken those ideas and created a modern ideological construct from them. I'm, I'm interested in the, the, the variety of historical constructions. And I'm also interested in the central role of class conflict and the way in which Machiavelli is one of the very few writers out there to say class conflict is not only a necessary but a good thing. And I want to look at how that idea has been and can be used. So I'm going to do a series on that. Probably going to take me a few weeks to like research and record, but that's going to be coming out. I've also got some really exciting interviews coming up, and I'll announce them as they come out. If you want to get all of these announcements and participate in these polls, absolutely the best way is to follow me on Twitter. We do also have a Facebook page, but um, I generally try not to spam people as much on Facebook, whereas I am pretty active on Twitter. And if you don't have a Twitter account, come join the wonderful site that its own users describe as a fucking hellscape. Philosophy Twitter is a bizarre and weird and um, interesting thing that I've become a participant in recently. So, yeah, follow me there if you want to catch all that. And I'm really excited to start work on this Machiavelli project. I wasn't sure which one of them I wanted to do, I, I wanted to just do more political ideologies, but then I think this has proved correct. And when I saw that Machiavelli did win, I was like, yeah, I've actually got a lot that I want to say on this. And it's such a fun historical character and such a fun period of history. Um, I'm really excited to start working on this project, so stay tuned for that. So that's coming. As always, if you want to support the show you can do so on Patreon. A lot of work goes into these, both the interviews and the solo project. This has come to consume a huge part of my life, which is great, actually. I love doing this. Um, if you want to support me in doing this and show that I'm not just howling into the void, as many of you have, by the way. Um, many people have sponsored me on Patreon. 
then please do so. Um, it helps pay the bills, and it, um, yeah, shows me that I do have a supportive audience, which is amazing. So thank you to everyone who does that. Thank you to everyone who listens to have this sort of platform of engaged interest where I can take on projects like this and do interviews like this is amazing. And I'm genuinely grateful for all of you, really. That's about it. Probably interviews next week, and then hopefully I'll have this project on on the air. Is that the right way one would say that? But but coming live um, within the month or so. So lots of exciting stuff coming up. Please do stay tuned. Apart from that, thank you again for listening. <laughs>